you'll want to get out your uh, message outline. Have that so you can follow along. We have a long passage today. And uh, in your insert, it just sort of has an abbreviated version. Apparently I forgot to give myself a copy of that. Because we're going to take a couple weeks to talk about creation. And uh, this week we're really going to focus on the very beginning of each one of those days. And we're going to focus particularly on the first day. But on this phrase, and God said, our passage is Genesis 1, starting at verse 3. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that wandered the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, 
Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. We're going to jump over to the middle of Genesis 2. Uh, verses 15 through 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you do. Thank you for creating this earth as a gift for us. Thank you for creating us with life to enjoy what you've given us. Thank you for this great day to celebrate your gifts of grace to us. Help us to know you more this morning. And for this, we need your grace. As your spirit was there in the beginning, bringing order to creation, we ask you to come and bring order to our lives. Do this for each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In that long chapter that we read, there is a number of theological issues, and we're going to take a number of weeks and deal with them one at a time, and a couple we're going to skip over and then come back to when they reappear later in Genesis. So... If I'm skipping your favorite part, don't panic. We're going to try to get to it. Um, <clears throat> but the Bible leaves us in no doubt that we have a God who speaks. And that's important. Because most religions don't. Apart from the Jewish religion... Most religions, God communicates in some other way, if at all. And yet here, the first thing God did was speak. Okay, the first thing he did was create the universe. But how did he do it? By speaking. We just read that, Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, verse 6, and God said, verse 9, and God said, verse 11, and God said, Verse 14, and God said, verse 20, and God said, verse 24, and God said, verse 26, then God said, and so on. Now, I read last week that a typical galaxy contains 100 billion stars. I think that's an estimate. And in the visible universe, there's thought to be 100 billion galaxies. Now, that's quite a voice that God has to speak all of that into existence. He starts by speaking. And as we read on in the Old Testament, we find God goes on speaking. We're told uh, that he speaks to Adam, 
to Cain, to Noah, and to Abraham, both directly and in a vision. He speaks to Lot through angels, to Rebekah, to Isaac, to Jacob in a dream, and then to Jacob in person. He speaks to Joseph in dreams. He speaks to Moses from the burning bush and later face-to-face on a regular basis. He speaks the Ten Commandments to all the people from the top of Mount Sinai. He speaks to Balaam through a donkey and an angel, and he speaks through Balaam to Balak. And we've only gotten to the fourth book of the Bible. We have a God who speaks and who speaks abundantly. So my starter question for everyone this morning is, doesn't all this make our Christian experience seem a little bit second rate? I mean, if God speaks so abundantly, where's all the burning bushes? Where's the angelic messengers? Where are the voices from heaven? It would make decision-making so much easier if God just told me what to do. Particularly if he told you what to do and it was what I wanted you to do. That'd be awesome for me. But it doesn't work that way. And so I read all this, and it's sort of like our experience of the voice of God seems somewhat lacking. It's, it's kind of poor. It's sort of non-existent in comparison. And you've come this morning to hear the voice of God himself. And all you get is me, another talking donkey. Mark's agreeing. (laughs) So let's have a look at what the Bible has to say. We're going to start with our passage today, but today we're going to take this subject somewhat topically and see what the Bible tells us about how God communicates with us. Before we dive into, again, the simple and easy subject of the doctrine of God, perhaps we should stop and quickly review what does Genesis contain. It was a custom in ancient times to name a book by its opening word, which is what the Hebrews did in titling this initial book of the Bible, Bereshit, which means in the beginning. In Hebrew, that's one word. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek about 250 uh, B.C., uh, which we call the Septuagint. If you look in your Bibles, if you have study Bibles, sometimes you'll see a note and it'll say LXX. That means it's from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And uh, they, the Greeks were the ones who gave it the title Genesis, uh, which both Latin and English translations have adopted. It's a good title, actually, because it gives us the Genesis, which means beginnings or origins of the doctrine of God, which rose to... Uh, tower high over all of the pagan notions of the day. And one of the things I've told you before is uh, Genesis refutes paganism. If we learn anything from the book of Genesis, that it basically attacks, replaces, tears down, and takes on all the notions of paganism of that day. We also get the Genesis of the doctrine of creation, which also rises above all the mythologies of the time gives us the doctrine of man, demonstrates that we're both uh, wonderful and awful. And the doctrine of salvation also has its genesis in the Garden of Eden and its grand development throughout the book. And it's all astounding. It's an amazing book. What we know about God, creation, ourselves, salvation, all begins in Genesis. It gives us the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. 
and even Jesus, who's the Messiah, and uh, his prophetic message, his Genesis begins in the opening chapters of Genesis. So the importance of Genesis for the believer cannot be overstated. Uh, all the doctrine of the book of Romans depends on Genesis. All the stuff in Revelation depends on Genesis. And God gives us a grand revelation of, of his own faithfulness as he recounts his faithfulness over and over again in the lives of the patriarchs. And we see that God remains faithful even when the people to whom the promises are made become the greatest threat to the fulfillment of those promises. And such is God's faithfulness that the sinful, disordered lives of those promise bearers can't stop the promises. And that's the way God's always been. The New Testament tells us, Second Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's a great verse to remember. And faithfulness is a primary reality about God, the Genesis reality. It's not new, but it means everything. And uh, so we, we see all that, and uh, we see that the bulk of Genesis affirms that we're sinful. We're terribly sinful. Even the best people in Genesis, the best of the patriarchs, are helpless, hopeless sinners. No one ever merits salvation. We understand that salvation only comes through faith. And Moses makes it clear that's how Abraham, who is the greatest of the patriarchs, was saved. Genesis 15, he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Paul alludes to that multiple times in the New Testament. Romans 4 says the purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. There's only one way that fallen humanity can be saved, and it's the Genesis way, and that's by grace through faith. There's never been another way uh, since Genesis 3 on. And I told you that about 40 years ago, Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote a little book called Genesis in Space and Time, subtitled The Flow of Biblical History. And he asked a really important question. What is the least that Genesis 1 and the following chapters must be saying for the rest of the Bible to make any sense. He was saying there is some minimum that these chapters are saying for the Bible to have any coherence or any logic. And so these first set of sermons, or last few uh, uh, sermons and the next few, are all going to be dealing with what is that basic minimum that Genesis 1 through 3 teaches us. Today we're going to look a little bit more at what it teaches us about God. In order to get a grasp on the big picture, you need to understand that God speaks directly. God speaks directly. That should be the first blank there in your outline. And again, that's important because that's new for most of the pagan religions of the world. God didn't speak to them directly. In fact, in most religions, he doesn't speak to them at all. So this is something that's really different. And the first action that's described for us is in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now there are those scholars who understand this to be some kind of metaphorical way of saying God brought the heavens and earth into being by his power. He didn't actually utter any words that it's all just metaphorical. Fine, could be. 
except that once Adam and Eve are made, then he actually addresses them personally. That's why that Genesis 2 passage was tacked on uh, to the end. He talks to them personally and gives them responsibilities. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what marriage will look like. He speaks to them. So the God of the Bible in the very first uh, two chapters is not this abstract, unmoved mover. He's not some spirit impossible to define, some ground of all being, some mystical experience. He has personality and he dares to disclose himself in words that people understand. He doesn't communicate to us in some language that people don't understand and only special few get the key. Right through the whole Bible, that picture of God communicating to us constantly reoccurs. However great or transcendent he is, he is a talking God. And the idea that God in some way speaks is an idea that runs through the whole Bible. It's right here in the opening chapter, God's creative word, so powerful that what is said happens. The God who speaks, it's there in all the stories of God's dealings with people. Abraham, for example, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God's guiding word. It's there in the promises that God has made. The promises God makes to Abraham, Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. It's there in the promises that God makes to Moses, Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. We see it over and over in the life of the patriarchs, even King David. God is a talking God. He speaks to human beings and they speak back to him. And there's a commonality of speech, propositions, and knowledge that's not merely felt, but can be articulated. This is a really big deal. Theologically, most religions don't have this. You can communicate with God. And you can understand when God communicates with you. So that's the first thing we see. God speaks directly. Second thing we see is that God speaks generally. God speaks generally. We call this general revelation. What God has revealed about himself through creation to all people, not just to his people. A general revelation comes through creation. It comes through common grace. It comes through conscience. This morning we're specifically going to focus on creation. Note the process of creation. God speaks and it happens. How many moms would like that power? You know? You want the, everybody to show up at the dinner table? And you say, supper time, and there's supper. And you didn't have to cook it. And you say, family, and there's the family. They're all there, seated and clean, washed hands, using their napkins. It would be amazing. <laughs> 
God speaks and it happens. He commands and light appears. Nine times in Genesis 1, we find the phrase, and God said. And this is called creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. We can't do this, so we can't even imagine how God does it. And the only word we would have for it is miracle. The universe has a miraculous beginning. The Bible tells us that God spoke and the universe came into being. And the Bible emphasizes this truth in a number of places, uh, starting perhaps with our responsive reading this morning from Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now, if you and I make something, we need some form of raw material to work with. Not so with God. The Apostle Paul said, again, Romans 4, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Nothing's there, and then something is. God creates by speaking. Whenever and whatever God creates, it's an act of his powerful, irresistible grace. Nothing forces God to speak. He only speaks when he wants to. But when he does speak, things happen. It doesn't just create the potential for something to happen. Things actually happen. God's words aren't just true. They're effectual. They make things happen. Think of Ezekiel 37. When Ezekiel called out to the valley of dry bones by God's word and God's spirit, you know, the bones didn't say, we don't want to get up. No, they got up. In John 11, when Jesus calls out to Lazarus, telling him to come out of the tomb, Lazarus didn't call back. Not now. I just got here. Ask again next year. No, he came out. When the voice of God rings out in gracious, creative power, not even death or unbelief can resist him. And it all starts here in Genesis 1. His only tool was his word, the revelation of his will, and God said his speech. That's all. In creating everything through his word, God's thought shaped itself exactly to the least cell in Adam. And yet the vast universe was shaped by his thought and will. As each of the trillions of cells uh, in our body, each cell's nucleus containing a coded database larger than all of the Encyclopedia Britannica, so even on this small scale, it's amazing. And of course, on the big scale, all the heavens and the stars, the universe, it's amazing. God's sheer power is expressed in this first day. God says, and it comes into being. You may have heard the expression of creation by divine fiat. It comes from the Latin word fiat, which doesn't refer to a car. And the first words of uh, the Latin uh, Bible of this section are fiat lux, let there be light. God said light into being. It stresses the sheer power of God. By eight simple commands, Moses says God spoke reality into being. That's an awesome thought. By eight words, God spoke the entirety of the universe. God orders the creation and his ordering is sovereign and effectual. When he speaks order into being, it comes into being. 
And apparently he does it without any effort at all, with a great deal of ease, a mere statement. I think C.S. Lewis tried to capture God's uh, ease and his joy in creation by his word in the Chronicles of Narnia. I know we have some Narnia fans in here. And when he has Aslan creating the universe, if you remember the story, Aslan's mouth is wide open in song, and as he sings, the color green begins to form around his feet and spreads out in a pool, and then flowers and trees appear on the hillside and move out before him, and as the tempo of the music picks up, there's showers of birds flying out of the trees, and then butterflies start showing up, and there's great celebration as this song crescendos into even louder, even uh, more overwhelming music. And as God's mouth is open, everything just gets created. And it seems to fit. In Genesis, God is like the soloist, let there be light. And the narrator is like the accompanist, accompany, the guy who plays along. <laughs> so he says, let there be light, and we read, and there was light. Now, you need to know, God doesn't make something every single day of creation. He doesn't. Some days he makes something. Some days he speaks and declares it to be separated, which indeed happens. And some days he just speaks and tells us why he made something. The point is not that God made something every day, but what he did do every day is he spoke. That's the point. God speaks every day of creation. He doesn't necessarily create something every day. Look at the first day again, the verses 3 through 5. And what you see is this. He creates, he explains, and he separates. God said on Sunday, let there be light, and there was light. I think it was nighttime. God speaks. There's a sunrise. God saw the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God here is separating things. You're going to see this in Genesis. God separates things by his word. And then verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. It was evening and there was morning the first day. And I think part of the point being made here is that God is not an absentee landlord who's distant from his creation, but God's intimately involved. God's the one who makes the sunrise. And here we see that God is a loving, personal, involved God. He's separate from his creation, but he's clearly involved in his creation. He makes sunrises. He makes leaves turn colors in the fall. He makes that cool breeze that you and I love on a crisp summer evening. That's God. God does that. God makes those things happen. God is the one who's involved in the affairs of human history and creation. And here he makes the sunrise. Next time you see the sunrise, praise the Lord. Next time you see the sunset, praise the Lord. It's a gift from God. It's something he gives us as a gift. So we see that God speaks directly, God speaks generally, and third, God speaks specially. Specially. What we see in the beginning of Genesis is the Holy Spirit was there in creation bringing order. And it's the same Holy Spirit that inspires the writers of Scripture to reveal to us what God says and how God has worked. And we call this special revelation. How God has communicated to us through the scriptures, through the word of God. General revelation brings us the knowledge of God. Special revelation brings us the saving knowledge of God. You understand the difference? Romans tells us that 
Everybody knows just through the creation that there is a God. But special revelation gives us the saving knowledge of God. Primarily, special revelation comes to us through Scripture and through Jesus. So the only reason that we know, the only reason that Moses knew how creation occurred is because the Holy Spirit was there, revealed it to him, inspired him to write it down, and then gives us understanding so that we might understand what Genesis has to say. And we see again that God is a God who speaks. When he speaks, his word goes out, his word changes things, it brings order, it brings life, it brings goodness, and it separates. And we see the powerful word of God. And that's why it's so important that you and I are people who believe the word of God. People who, when we hear his voice, as scripture says in Hebrews 3, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Do not harden your hearts. That when God speaks to us through his word, we realize that faith comes through hearing the word of God. And we, like creation, respond rather than reject when God speaks to us. There's no way I can do a complete theology of everything the scripture says about what God says, uh, but I just want to sort of show how it works. So I've, There's dozens of places you could go. I've uh, more or less arbitrarily chosen two. Uh, first, we see God the Father has written Jesus into the Old Testament. In Luke 24, with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, we read, uh, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So when the prophets of the Old Testament spoke, it was Jesus they were speaking about. With the key that is Jesus, the Old Testament makes sense. Second, we see that God has also written Jesus into the New Testament, um, not just telling us who he is and what he's done, but also says, and that shows 1 John uh, 1, that we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John expects that as when we read what he and the other apostles wrote about Jesus, we won't just learn interesting facts about him, but we will find those words have power. They're able to bring us into fellowship with Jesus himself. How does that work? Is it because we get it and other people don't get it? I mean, there's a reason that Bible study isn't just learning facts about God, like studying a textbook. It's that the Holy Spirit brings God, God's Word alive in our hearts and minds, in our lives. The book of Hebrews, again, chapter 4 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. <coughs> when Christians read the Bible, the Holy Spirit uses the words like a scalpel to do heart surgery on us, carving us into the likeness of Christ. And that should be our experience of hearing the God who speaks. Now, God hasn't just spoken to us through his written word, but most supremely, he's communicated to us through the living word, through the incarnate word. And that's because God speaks personally. 
directly, generally, specially, and personally. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And what we find now is that Jesus is speaking God's words. Unlike the prophets who merely relayed God's word, Jesus spoke God's word on his own authority. You remember, what did the prophets say? Thus saith the Lord. But Jesus says, I say to you. Jesus speaks God's words with all the authority of God. There's even something more going on here. The uh, NIV, the New International Version, tries to help us here. It says, in the past God spoke through the prophets, but now he's spoken by his son. That distinction is not actually in the Greek, but the thought is very biblical. The point is that when God speaks to us by his son Jesus, he's speaking in a completely different way. Jesus isn't just another way that God speaks to add to all the other ways that God spoke in the past. The verse doesn't say, and in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. It says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The coming of Jesus marks a clear change in the way God speaks to his people. That's because Jesus doesn't just bring God's message. He is God's message. He doesn't just speak God's word. He is God's word. Very well-known beginning to the Gospel of John says that, John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The entirety of what God wants to say to us put on flesh and came and lived among us. Jesus is God's word personified. That's what I mean when I say God speaks personally. Jesus doesn't just tell us God's word. He is God's word. And the next observation to make is he is God's last word. Notice there's no parallel in these verses for the phrase many times in various ways. When God spoke in Jesus, he only spoke once. He gives us the whole message in Jesus. That text in Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. When we see Jesus, we see God in as much of his godness as we can handle. And there's nothing more to say. God creates everything. And then to get his work done, what does he do? What does he send forth? His word. His powerful, irresistible, irrefutable word. God's word goes out. And I've said this many times before. Some of you will remember it. God's word is powerful in and of itself. Doesn't need me to make it powerful. Isaiah 55, love this uh, from the prophet Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, 
making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Nothing can resist the powerful word of God. And the word of God goes out on what day? The first day. And we call the first day Sunday. Not a trick question. Let's try it again. And we call the first day Sunday, the day of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God speaks at daybreak on Sunday. His word goes out. It brings life. We sin and die. Jesus Christ, the living word of God, comes into human history, and on daybreak on a Sunday, he rises from the dead as the beginning of a new creation. And we are invited to respond to the word of God that goes out, to have our faith built by hearing the word of God. The reason we gather on Sunday is the day that God began his good work in creation. It's the day that God culminated his work in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's the day that he's still working on us, preparing us for our eternity just as you prepare creation uh, as a gift for us, and that the Lord Jesus Christ is now alive and well. He ascended into heaven, and what is he doing today? He is preparing a place for us. Amen? He's preparing a place for us. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. will be new creations in Christ who walk into this new creation that God has made. And in the meantime, we get together on Sunday, the day God began his work and sent forth his word, the day the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, came out of his grave. And what we do is open the word of God and let the word of God explode into our lives to bring life where there's death, to bring order where there's chaos, to prepare us so that someday we might see God face to face. And so now we respond to the word of God. We respond just as creation did, obediently, triumphantly, fruitfully, joyously, gladly. That's why Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The right response to understanding the Creator is to appreciate the creation, to enjoy the creation, to praise the Creator. He communicated to us through His creation, through His Word, and through His Son. And the question for us this morning is simply this. Are you listening? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, you have made all things out of nothing by the power of your word. You were in the beginning and your spirit hovered over the face of the deep in the person of your son. You've spoken the world into being. Thank you so much that you speak to us. I pray that we would hear you in your word. We would respond in obedience as your creation did, coming to new life as part of your creation. Father, grant that we would know you better through the book of Genesis, which is your word, and grant that we would believe it and live by it. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.